Now, our context really begins in chapter 4 at about verse 17. But uh, it would be a bit too much for us to read this evening. But we can pick up in verse 15 of chapter 5. So we're going to begin verse 15 and we will read through chapter 6, verse 9. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord." giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy And without blemish, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself and the wife, see that she reverence her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the land, excuse me, on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, uh, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening knowing that your master also is in heaven. Neither is there respect of persons with him. Amen. 
May the Lord be pleased to bless His holy word to our hearts this evening. Now, following that uh, wonderful and rich passage of inspired thinking and writing, we have the following. Virginia Mollencott said this in her article, Evangelicalism, a Feminist Perspective. I view the hierarchical concept of dominance and submission, even when softened to male, in quotes, headship and female, in quotes, supportive role, as an unbiblical and anti-Christian concept. I regard the idea that one category of persons must submit to the authority of another category as the root concept not only of sexism, but of racism, economic exploitation, and imperialism. Close quote. Now, these complaints arise from one who professes to be a Christian. She abhors the notion of hierarchy. And hierarchy, uh, in this particular case, means categories of people arranged in ranks. She objects to the notion of one category of persons submitting to the authority of another. Now, while parading as Christian thought, and uh, this permeates American religion, these views are contradictory to the teaching of Jesus Christ, the apostles, and the whole canon of Scripture. It is tragic that this very notion is rampant among many of the professing conservative evangelical seminaries. Right now, one of the men that is editors of one of the most important and one of the most popular series of commentaries being used by pastors is, quote, an evangelical feminist who would completely agree with this notion of radical egalitarianism. Egalitarianism simply means the doctrine of everyone being equal. And you hear that in in the plainest words imaginable. Listen once again to how she says it. I view the hierarchical concept of dominance and submission. And notice how she puts those together. That. Dominance is one that immediately people would kind of prickle against and then puts the word submission that's in the text here right along with it. Even when softened to male headship and female supportive role, it's unbiblical. She says an anti-Christian. Anti-Christian. I regard the idea that one 
category of persons must submit to the authority of another category as the root concept not only of sexism but of racism. Economic exploitation, read capitalism, and imperialism, meaning that's what our country is when it goes to war or some of its other practices. Well, brethren, I don't think you have to be a Greek scholar to read a passage like this and see that, again, in the plainest words imaginable, the opposite concept is what's being set forth here. What we've just read is wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters, all of them certain categories, and all of them in a relationship that would be classed as hierarchical. In other words, there's one category that is to be viewed as having authority, and the other category is having to submit to that authority. It astounds me personally. It astounds me personally that such thinking is accepted anywhere as Christian. If what we mean by Christian is following the teachings of Christ and the apostles. Now my point is not to set Miss Mollencott up and spend the evening shooting at her or ridiculing her. I simply want to challenge your own thinking that we live in a day that is professing with its mouth to believe in the Word of God while doing virtually everything in its exegetical and hermeneutical power to undo what the Word of God says. Our title tonight is Submit as Unto the Lord. And we want to consider three things. Number one, to whom should wives submit? Number two, in what manner should wives submit? And number three, why should wives submit? These words, subjection, subject, submission, submit, have all become the equivalent of four-letter words in Christian language in our day. They are considered, as you heard right here, this, is, this very notion is the very root of racism. In other words, hatred, imperialism, conquering other nations, economic exploitation, making more money than someone else. 
And yet, I would submit to you that uh, the words here are very plain. And while it is easy for anybody to come with a cavalier attitude to the, to the Word of God and take a verse or take a passage and say, it's so easy, this is what it says, this is what it means. And uh, we know that sometimes what people hear or what they think they hear in the text simply isn't there. So we do want to come to the text with a humble spirit and say, Lord, what are you saying? And that's why I've couched the questions derived directly from just hours of reading the text and thinking through it and, and uh, marking it up. It's very simple. To whom should wives submit? There's a subject, there's a verb, there's a direct object here. Very basic grammar. If you look with me, in verse 22, it says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Wives, now the first thing we want to notice here is there is an address. Wives, that's the category of people addressed by the Apostle of God. Wives. And then he gives what we call, in grammar, an imperative. It's a command. Wives, submit yourselves. There's an understood subject there. All imperatives have an understood subject, or I should say most of the time, they have an understood subject. If I say, close the door, the, obviously the, the uh, subject is the person I'm directing that imperative to. Stand up, please. Show me your driver's license. Uh, those are not spoken into the air. There's, there's an implied subject. And it is clear here, the addressees are wives, and then Paul uh, gives an imperative and says, Submit. Who? That's a word that just bristles nowadays. It bristles. It's, it's a word that people literally sit and get angry as they hear. Submit. Submit. Sounds ugly. Huh? Brethren, I trust that we will see before we finish the studies of the next few weeks how precious a word submit is. How beautiful a word. Not hateful. Not abhorrent. But how precious a word submit really is. But it has been made the villain. So submission is viewed with hostility Anger, epithets, and as we have already heard, this notion is the very root of sexism, racism, capitalism, and imperialism, and probably a number of other isms. That's not true. It's the heart and soul of Christianity. Submission is a precious and a blessed word. It can be abused, and we would be fools to act as if that were not the case. And so it is incumbent upon 
each of us to understand it well. So, Paul addresses the wives. He gives them a command. Submit. Submit yourselves. Submit yourselves. You submit you. (laughs) That's really hard to miss what's being said here. Uh, At the risk of of sounding condescending, the, the words here really couldn't be plainer. I know that in some, in, in some passages and in some arguments, we can wrestle over the meaning of the word world. We can wrestle over the meaning of the word all. Uh, we can wrestle over the various words in, in numerous passages where there are controversies. But the word submit, <laughs> the word submit means uh, subjecting one to the authority of another. You submit you to your husbands. Paul is addressing what life in Christ looks like. And this is why the context is so important. It's very easy when we take a passage as we have this evening and, and, uh, and don't give a big full exposition to, to miss the context. And this is one of the reasons I read the lengthy passage. But I want us to back up and consider exactly where this imperative lies. <clears throat> First of all, Paul begins his epistle to the Ephesian congregation with a burst of praise and of worship and of adoration to God. And why? For His sovereign, eternal, saving purpose in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And he goes on to tell us that we've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. A blessed, glorious doctrine that fills God's children, or at least it should, properly understood, it should fill us with joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's the very foundation of our assurance. God loved us before the foundation of the world and infallibly purposed to save each and every one of His dear children through the work of His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. And what is set out in that, that paragraph Uh, that is so precious to us at the beginning of that letter, or this letter, is that God loved us before the foundation of the world. He purposed to save us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for this very reason, we are accepted in Christ before God. I, I, I tell you, brethren... If that doctrine ever really gets a hold of your soul, it will transform you. If it is just a speculative, Calvinistic doctrine to you, may it perish in the dust. But if you understand that you are accepted in Christ, it is the most liberating doctrine I know of in the New Testament. 
You don't have to prove anything to anybody anymore. As such, you don't have to live your life trying to be acceptable to persons. You don't live your life based on your performances anymore. Period. Because God in His mercy has saved you and made you acceptable if the God of heaven and earth accepts you. What does it matter what another bag of dust thinks about you ever? Ever! Now, this is how Paul starts his, his epistle. It is a glorious doctrine of salvation that sets men free. They are accepted with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Their sins are washed away and because of His eternal love for His people, in union with Christ, cleansed by His blood, made alive by the Spirit, they are accepted and acceptable to the King of kings, the Lord of the universe. And we praise and thank our God for it. So Paul moves from this... <clears throat> And we'll jump over some of the things that he says in chapters 2 and 3. But, <clears throat> having set before us that the Father has purposed salvation and the Son has accomplished it and the Holy Spirit applies it, we want to understand what it means because that's what Paul is getting to. What does it mean for me to tell you that God the Father has a glorious plan, that He's loved you before the foundation of the world and that you are now accepted in Him? What does all that mean? What does it mean for you to be in Christ? What does it mean for you to be in union with the resurrected Lord of glory? Why does Paul pray that the Spirit of God would move in your hearts and make you know God's power to you? Why does he pray that? Because Christians are to live differently than the world. It's that simple. Christians are to live differently than the world. God in His glory and His mercy saves sinners. And He makes them precious ones to Him. He adopts them into His glorious family. He makes them His sons. They are joint heirs with Christ, washed in the blood of the Lamb, and regenerated by the Holy Ghost. That means they are different from those who have not been invaded by the Spirit of God. They're different. They should be. Now, the enemy of your soul does everything he can to blind you to that truth. If he cannot have your soul, which he'll try to convince you over and over that he does have, and I'm speaking to God's children, then He'll do everything He can to utterly destroy any testimony that you have. He'll do everything He can to make you fearful, to sit and tremble, not to be able to walk around in the glories of what God has done for you. He wants you bound up. Paul says, no. Nope, don't live like the Gentiles. You've been changed. 
He spends a great deal of time in chapter 4 talking about the old man and the new man. You're not the old man. Put that off. Put on the new man. What does he mean by that? Stop living like a lost man. Stop living like those who were in bondage to their senses. Stop living like those who only live for their next thrill, their next lust, their next personal sensual stroke. And live like what you are. You're a new man in Christ. God in His infinite wisdom has sent His Spirit and made you alive. You're alive in Christ. Well, I don't feel very alive today. Believe your God. What does this have to do with women in submission? Everything. You see, in chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles in the vanity of their mind having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over into lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. That's not the life that I told you about, Paul says. It's not the life you're finding anywhere in the Scriptures. It's not the life the Holy Spirit is working in you. You're not walking around with a darkened mind. Your mind has been opened by the power of the Holy Ghost. You have light. You're now children of light. Live like children of light. Put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And then, because of who they are in Christ, because of these admonitions, because of what they are by the saving grace of a holy Redeemer, because because they're in union with Christ and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit animates them there to live holy lives. Clearly different from the other Gentiles. Different. Changed. They're no longer in darkness or in bondage to sin. Do you hear that, brethren? Do you believe a gospel... That, that liberates people like this? Or do you just have Sunday religion? Or just daily religion? Or do you know the transforming power of Almighty God? This is what Paul's talking about. He takes all this, all this room in these chapters to build where we're going. Then he, he, he gives a list He gives a brief catalog of sinful attitudes and actions that they should flee in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4. Then he begins chapter 5 this way, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. What? You hear that? Walk in love. Christ has loved you. You're not Gentiles living in darkness. You're free men. You are God's Free men. Free. Absolutely free. Accepted to God. Alive in the Spirit. In union with the resurrected Lord of glory. Free. 
So live like that. That's what he's saying. So live like that. Be ye therefore followers of God as what? As beaten slaves. As ground down into the dust worms of the earth. No, as dear children of God. He loves his children. He doesn't spend all day beating them up. Now, he can chasten his children severely. But always for the purpose of drawing them back to himself. It's always redemptive. Because he put all of the judgment for their sins on Christ, his holy son. He's not getting a pound of flesh out of us. He may chastise us severely, but it is always redemptive. It is always to bring us to Him because we're His dear, dear, dear children and therefore walk in love. And that's what brings us to verse 15 and prefaces the issue of women and submission. In verse 15, he says, See then, meaning, based on who you are, those that are alive in Christ, those that have the light of Christ, see then that ye walk circumspectly, upright, not as fools, but as wise. Walk as the wise Brethren, Christianity is not an empty creed. It is not a, a superficial philosophy. It's the greatest philosophy. But it's not just a philosophy. It is a supernatural life that God has purposed and executes daily in His people. And when they're alive, illumined by the light of the Spirit and God's words, they live a certain way. It's inescapable. You read Ephesians a hundred times, and you will come away with, I trust, the Spirit of God is giving you light, you will come away with the fact that God had an eternal purpose to take God-hating sinners that were running this way and turns them into lovers of Jesus Christ going that way. What in the world does it have to do with women? And submission. I repeat. Everything. This verse, verse 15, says, Walk as wise redeeming the time, buying up the time, using the time wisely because the days are evil. You're surrounded by darkness. You're in the long night of sin. And you're to shine as lights, wise lights in this darkened world. And then he says, Wherefore? Because of this, because the days are evil and you are to walk as wise, 
Be not unwise. Don't be the opposite. But understanding what the will of the Lord is. And the will is that we walk in harmony with the light of His Word. He says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And following, walking in wisdom, and being filled with the Spirit is the passage that we've, un, uh, we've begun to unfold tonight. Walking in wisdom and manifesting the filling of the Spirit is applied now by the Apostle to our day-to-day living. And what we're getting at is that the eternal saving purpose of God ultimately does what? It restores what was lost in biblical manhood and virtuous womanhood in the fall. Let that sink in for just a minute. The eternal purpose of God, in other words, makes men men and women women. And it puts them in the roles that they should walk in. And that's in contrast to whom? The other Gentiles. The lost world. What am I saying? Well, I'm saying a lot of things. But I'm saying that the thinking that I presented after the reading of the Scripture by Mrs. Mollenkopf is the thinking of the Gentiles, not the Word of God. The thought that nobody should tell me or anybody else what to do, it makes me sick at my stomach to hear about the authority of this person over that person. Oh, I despise it. That's the sound of the other Gentiles. Because Paul is giving us as hierarchical structure as you can find in plain language in the Bible. It is amazing that people will get PhDs and spend years studying the Greek to say, this isn't what this is saying. Or it doesn't really mean this. To whom should wives submit? Paul says it in a sentence. Wives, you submit you. You submit yourselves unto your husbands. Well, you don't know my husband. That's not the issue. Peter deals with that, and we'll look at that a little later. Not tonight. But the imperative is clear. When the apostle says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, 
and be filled with the Spirit, one of the manifestations of that is the relationship between a husband and his wife. And that relationship means that the husband has authority over his wife. It is a biblical authority. It is a delegated authority. It is an authority for good, for purity, for righteousness, for holiness, for edification. But it is the authority of Almighty God. Nonetheless, it is authority. Submit yourselves. Now, I want to suggest to you that when, when you hear that, ladies, when you hear that, if your heart sinks a little bit, if that sounds hard to you, if it sounds harsh, if it sounds wrong, there could be a lot of, a lot of things behind that reaction. But the first one is unbelief. Because the Word of God declares this. Secondly, you might say, ah, you don't know the experiences I've had. You don't know how I've been abused. You don't know how people have taken this verse and bludgeoned me bloody with it. Granted, that may be the truth. And you have my genuine, and I mean this, you have my genuine sorrow and grief if that is your experience. But it doesn't change the Word of God. Your true safety and your true growing to the woman that God has saved you to be is to be found right here. Now, this is not all there is to your Christian life. This is not all there is to being a woman. This is not all there is regarding this subject even. But it is absolutely essential and foundational to the glory of God and to healthy marriages. Let's uh, define marriage while we're here and then we'll move on to the next point. Marriage is a covenantal and sexual union between a man and a woman with God as their witness. And that union is a hierarchical structure. This does not mean that women are inferior beings. What it means is that the God of heaven and earth has built in to the relationship between man and woman what will become a picture of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that in this passage as clearly, again, as we could hope for. Now, while Ephesians has a lot of difficult passages, and while there are a number of, of areas in 
this epistle that one really has to grapple with to, to, to try to understand. I hope that you will not listen to the voices of the majority view almost in our country and, and what is gaining great ground in, in conservative circles that somehow the notion of authority over someone is an evil concept. A bad concept. One of the reasons, there, there are two primary reasons for that reaction, and it crops up in marriage all the time. And number one is because we're fallen sinful creatures. All of us stained by the lie that Satan told in the garden. You shall be as gods. In the day you eat thereof, you shall be as gods. You're going to find out when you eat that fruit that he's had you under his thumb all this time and you won't have to listen to him anymore when you find out you're God. Right? I mean, here's your doctrine of radical egalitarianism. We're not satisfied with simply being creatures. We've got to be other than what we are. We want to eat that fruit and be God. So number one, it is because we are sinful that we despise authority. It's just that simple. We are stained with that terrible satanic lie and it works a devilish fruit in us. Nobody tells me what to do. It was astounding that as he faced death, Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma bomber, wrote out the, the poem, I'm the captain of my own fate. That's, that's human nature. You don't have to be a bomber to think like, I'm my own boss. I steer my own course. I take responsibility for my life. I've done what I've done because I've wanted to do it. This is the way it ends. Fine. I called the shots. In the words of the Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. That's the ultimate fleshy song. You don't have to listen to rock and roll to get fleshy worldly thoughts. It's right there with old blue eyes. I did it my way. My way. Scriptures are all about us doing it God's way. And when it, uh, it comes to the issue of marriage as a covenantal and sexual union between a man and a woman with God as their witness, there are roles in that union that are absolutely vital. The second reason people hate this doctrine is, is one that uh, very often works out because of experience. Someone in authority has abused them. And they don't ever want anybody having authority over them again. Now, you see, that plays right along with our sinful disinclination to authority in the first place. If we were really good 
as the psychologists say, if we would just learn to love ourselves because really we're so wonderful, if, if we were really good, then when people would abuse us, we wouldn't become monsters and blame them. We wouldn't say, ah, you abused me and so it's all right for me to hate and to be filled with grudges and anger and fury and bitterness. And I'm not going to listen to anybody anymore. Nobody's ever going to do that to me again. He'd say, well, I understand the way things are. People do wicked things sometimes. I'm not going to let that bother me. But we're not good. We're sinful. And so we respond. And what's already in there as a flame within us just has gas poured on it. I've said to you before, and I think even in this series of studies, that uh, my, my daughter did a term paper once on, on feminism, early feminism. Uh, there have been three major feminist movements in the history of our country. And uh, of the early feminists, almost all of them had been in professing Christian homes. Some of them were the wives of pastors that beat them. And they hated the Bible and they hated God. They hated a a God that would say, a man like this is somebody I've got to submit to. Well, Satan gets a lot of mileage out of that. And that's why it's incumbent upon every one of you men to walk as holily toward your wives as you possibly can and toward your daughters. Don't make them despise what God has made them. Because of you. So, wives should submit to their own husbands in this blessed covenantal and sexual union with God as their witness. If we really believe God was our witness and that He was really under the roof with us when we go home from church, we wouldn't have some of the arguments that break out right after church or before we go. seeing enough smiles to know that you know what I'm talking about. So, in what manner should wives submit? In what manner should wives submit? Well, it says, as unto the Lord. Now, how should that be? How should that be? Well, husbands often, in their sinful wickedness, seem to think that that should be waiting on me hand and foot. Whatever I want, whatever I'm doing, wait on me. And whatever you're doing, stop what you're doing and wait on me. Bring me this, bring me that, do this for me, take care of that. Without any consideration of who she is and what her responsibilities require of her. Just as long as you peel me a grape while I've got my feet up here, I'm happy. Well, once again, that would make a lot of women despise authority. But how do you submit unto the Lord? What about children? When you say to children, "Um, I want you to go and do this. I want you to uh, 
clean up your room. I want you to go out and pick your bike up out of the front yard. I want you know, all of these things that we say to children. Go, go back in there. No, you can't go over to so-and-so's house until you've done your homework. Are you thrilled when they go? <laughs> all right. Okay. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I mean, they can say it. They can regurgitate it. They don't mean it. You know they don't mean it. There's no love in it. Unfortunately, this is the way a lot of women approach this. For those who even consider the thought, many of them go, Okay, I'll do it. Why are you doing it? Because I'm supposed to. I've sat, I have sat in counseling sessions many times. I wish I could only tell you this was very rare. But I've, I've sat numerous times and heard women say, you know, I'd say, well, uh, how's your relationship? And, you know, I hear the, the, the tragic spew. And I will say, well, well, why do you submit to your husband? Well, because I have to. And that's it. That, that's, what, what, that's what they say. Well, you have to. That's what the Word of God says. Wives, submit yourselves. But the point is, what's the motivation? How do you serve the Lord? Do you get up in the morning and go, all right, look, you've given me another day. I'll read the Bible. I don't get anything out of it. It's boring, except for a few parts here and there. I don't get it. I'm reading it. Okay, I've done my, my fifth. I've had my quiet time. I've, I've given God this 15 minutes here. This isn't pleasing to God. Nothing about that pleases God. It's not honoring to Him. How, how should you serve the Lord? Well, it depends on how you view the Lord. Is He the cosmic volcano that's going to crush you the minute you step out of line? If you think that way, you won't serve Him with joy and gladness. Right? How will you serve God? How do you... Wives, how do you submit to your husbands? Is it with a grudge? Is it with bitterness? The first thing it should be is with love. First John chapter 4 tells us, we love Him, we love God, because He first loved us. We should love, love the Lord Jesus Christ because of His infinite love for us and because He has saved us and washed us from our sins. We should fervently love Him. He's rescued us. He's delivered us from hell. He's delivered us from darkness, from bondage, from the nastiness and the filth of what I am. I should serve a God who has cleansed me with love. I should love Him. I should weep because of His mercy and His grace to me. And you know, sisters, if you know that, if you really rejoice in that, if you exult in that, you can see your husband for what he is. And you can submit to him. If you know the love of Christ and that you are accepted in the Beloved, that you're not like the Gentiles, throw off the old man and be what you are. Walk in the new man. Walk by the power of the Spirit, loving Christ, and submit to your husband with love. Love him. Loving is not how you feel about Him. It is what you do to Him according to the Word of God. Number two, with humility. 
And of course, these things apply to all of us, but it should be with humility. With love, you should serve the Lord with humility. When you understand His greatness, that His glory is brighter than a billion suns, that He spoke this extraordinary universe into existence, that there are stars out there that, that absolutely dwarf our, our sun, that mass in the middle of our uh, solar system, where millions of our, our sun could fit into these single stars. The incredible power of Christ. When we see His glory, when we see His love for His Father, when we see His obedience, even into death on the, on the cross of Calvary. Oh, we should, we should serve Him with humility. We should serve Him with humility. And because that weak and limited husband of yours is his representative. You should serve him with humility. Not because in and of himself he's worth a whole lot. Sometimes we're, we're not very pleasant to be around. Christ is always pleasant to be around. But if Christ dwells in you and Christ dwells in him, you can serve him with humility. Not because he's Christ on earth, but because he's a child of the living Christ. With zeal, the Lord Jesus Christ saved us for zeal, the purposes of zeal. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. who gave Himself for us that He might deliver us from all, all, all of our iniquities, our transgressions, our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And to make unto Himself what? To purify them and to make unto Himself a zealous people. Full of good works. The very nature of salvation should produce zealous people. There's no zeal in you. Something's desperately wrong. You don't understand what God's done for you. You don't understand who He is. But if there's, if there's not a fire burning in there, at least sometimes. Oh, we all get cold once in a while. But if there isn't something that glows in love and zeal for Christ, something's wrong. And sisters, if your heart is filled with the love and the joy of a Christ who loved you and gave Himself for you, serve Him with zeal as you serve your husband, as you submit to Him. With zeal, zeal, as we're going to see. A woman who gets a hold of this becomes a walking picture of the gospel to a lost or even perhaps a cold husband. It's all built in Christ. You've got to know Christ. He must be your life. He must be all that there is, the very focus, the center Fourthly, with diligence. We serve the Lord with diligence. You want to serve and, and, and submit to your husband with diligence. You read the Proverbs, you'll see that the, Proverbs, the woman of Proverbs 31 is a diligent woman. And finally, with joy. With joy. And serving and submitting 
let me say the word submit, submitting to your husband with joy does not begin with him. If you start with him, I can assure you that your submission most of the time will probably be joyless. Now, I hope that's not true of you men here. I hope that if I were to pull your wife aside, which I'm not going to do, if I were to pull her aside and say, all right, let's hear it. Give me the whole thing. What's it like living with this man? I want to hear it right now. Don't hold anything back. Maybe I should try this sometime. But what's the point? What would you say? Is it is there joy? Is there joy? Well, if 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 it's all on him, just by your own sinful nature, submitting to him with joy might be difficult. I trust that all of you men love your wives so that they find it a joy to live with you. There are days when it's not joyful for my beloved to be under the same roof with me. I hate that. I don't want it to be that way. I would love for her to be able to tell every woman on the planet, Oh! Oh! What? Your husband doesn't do this or he doesn't do that. I serve my... I submit to my husband with the greatest joy because he's just so wonderful. I want to be that wonderful. I'm still wrapped up with me. I'm doing everything I can to walk with Christ to mortify the deeds of the body. Sometimes it's not very successful. I don't like saying that. I don't like saying that from a pulpit. It's certainly not a license for anybody here to, to make light of or loose of it. But plainly and simply, brethren, how do you how do you make the atmosphere in your house for your wife? If if her submission to you is to be joyful, ladies first, it's got to begin with your joy in Christ. In knowing the one who loved you from before the foundation of the world. You see, that's why Paul starts the epistle that way. God loved you before the foundation of the world. And His love is better than that fellow's love. No matter how sweet it may be, He may be just like in the Song of Solomon. You might stand back there and say, Ah! Thighs like pillars and and head and hair and eyes like this and that. He just might be absolutely thrilled with him, at least for a while, until he loses some of that. But you should love and know the Lord Jesus Christ and know that He loves you. His love for you is better than the Song of Solomon could ever be. You should know Him. And if you know Him and joy in Him, you can submit to your husband with joy. Well, we need to stop. We didn't get to why should wives submit, and that's what we'll spend our time with next week. Well, let's close it by, by considering these things. To whom? Your husbands. In what manner? As unto the Lord. And I, I trust you recognize that those five heads that I gave there, love, humility, zeal, diligence, and joy, don't exhaust how we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but these are the things that we want to consider. How is any of this possible? I've said it under every head. And ladies, this is where I become a broken record. And, and I, it's because I believe this is, the Scriptures are a broken record when it comes to this. It's all in Christ. 
It's all in the Lord Jesus. He must be your life. He must be the focus of everything. He must be your strength, your wisdom, your joy, your peace. You must know Him. You must love Him. Get alone with Him. Get quiet with Him. Pour your heart out to Him. He hears. He's the great head of His church. He's the great intercessor of His people. His blood makes the foulest clean no matter how much you failed yesterday or this morning or five minutes ago. Repent. Trust His precious blood. Confess. And walk in that precious fellowship with Him. And then you can see that fellow the way he is. And you can live with him the way he is. And you can submit to him the way he is. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how desperately we need Thee. Our lives so often in this day, we've, we've lived in Vanity Fair for so long, that sometimes we're just utterly irrelevant. That, oh God, when we know who and what we are and we walk fulfilling Thy eternal purpose in Christ and with Christ, we can be what You call us to be. Every single sister here, every woman born of Thy Spirit, O Lord, is capable of walking in what is sometimes a difficult imperative from Thee. Oh, Father, how I pray for every man in here that we would take seriously the injunctions that we saw months ago as we studied godly manhood and recognize that we will answer for the atmosphere in our homes and for the countenances of our wives. O oh God in heaven, bless these dear wives, bless these dear women uh, that uh, do not have husbands, bless these dear children, these young girls that will be wives someday, grant them grace and life in Christ, and may they learn to walk with Thee. In Jesus' holy, holy, holy name, Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. 
and remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.